From the Virginia Audio Collective at WTJU 91.1 FM and Brown College at the University of Virginia, this is Circle of Willis, human stories of the science that shapes our world. The details change, but it doesn't mean it's all the same because it's it's just human stuff. You're not doing anything that's that weird. You're yeah. trying to solve the problem yeah. of anxiety. Don't try to solve the problem of anxiety. That is the problem of anxiety. Welcome back to Circle of Willis. I'm your host, Jim Cohn. And I'm the producer, Sage Tangway. Face your fears. It's a fairly common concept for self-growth and improvement, but often feels like it's easier said than done. During today's episode, we'll dig in a little bit deeper to explore the history and practice of exposure therapies and what their effectiveness might teach us about the human mind. We'll start off with a conversation between Jim and a pioneer of modern exposure therapy, David Barlow. Who is David Barlow? Yeah, so David Barlow is an American psychologist. Um, He's a professor emeritus of psychology and psychiatry at Boston University. And he's really uh, a giant in the field of clinical psychology, being among the first to systematically uh, investigate and understand what we now call exposure or systematic desensitization. Were you thoroughly in the sort of cognitive behavioral camp of intervention at this, at this point? Were you, were you a sort of a cognitive behavioral in, in, interventionist and researcher? Yeah, I was um, the first generation yeah, to right. actually uh, begin my career with that kind of a focus. Began, uh, you know, over 50 years ago. <laughs> so I entered graduate school in 1964. Uh, in those days, it, this was predated the area of biological psychiatry. Mm-hmm. And so both clinical psychology programs, such as they were, and psychiatry departments were wall-to-wall psychodynamic, psychoanalytic. Right. Uh, orientated, it was accepted as the truth. Before we go any further, let's get some historical context for where we are at in the development of psychology and psychotherapy. Let's rewind back about a century. In the late 1800s, there was a sharp increase contemporaneously with Darwin's theory of evolution and new breakthroughs in physics and other biological sciences in mental health as well as physical health. You know, I'm really thinking obviously about Freud and Freud's mentees. Along with that, you have an explosion in psychological science. The idea of studying the psyche is becoming attractive to people who want to apply a legitimate scientific approach to it. The reason that I'm going this deep into the history is because at the same time, the William James School, which is brilliant theoretically, but largely focused on introspection and uh, things that you can't or can't easily measure directly. So you have this split right away in the approach to making psychological phenomena scientific One emphasizes all the sort of ordinary and recognizable principles of science, and the other basically admitting defeat 
when it comes to psychological phenomena because so much of it is your personal experience and you can't satisfy the ordinary criteria of science. Even in the 1960s, when David Barlow is finishing school, this idea pervades that psychology might not have any standard empirical expression comparable to other sciences. I had one, I had, uh, one professor who had become a clinical psychologist and was actually chair of our department uh, in Boston at the time and said to me, you know, it's a, paraphrasing him, it's really a pipe dream to think that that the scientific method could be used to explain the complexity the compl of the human the great condition. Complexity of the human it's condition. It's just a method that's not suited to yeah. do that. We need another kind yeah. of epistemology, <laughs> and it's it's uh, you know it, it's sort of something closer to the humanities in, in terms yeah. of understanding. Now there were some people who attempted to do these quasi clinical trials. There were right. a few that existed at the time, but nobody knew how to do them. I mean, it was. Yeah. It was uh, such a, a waste of time. Some of them were quasi-designs or open clinical trials where they would take some measurements, but most of the measurements were very psychodynamically kind of informed. They weren't directly measuring, let's say, improvement of any right, kind. Right, they were measuring right, right. process kind of theoretical notions uh, yeah. as what therapy unfolded. Therapy would go on for months or even years. Years, several and, times a uh, week. So sometime. it was very expensive and impractical yeah. to uh, do it. And very few studies were even attempted. The ones that were found nothing whatsoever. But looking back to the turn of the 20th century, new ideas about the mind are about to pop up. Through the 10s and 20s and 30s of the 20th century, and you start seeing the development of psychotherapies outside of the widely assumed to be true domain of psychoanalysis. But right around this time, you have the development of behaviorism. You know, Pavlov and his famous dogs, John Watson abusing children to make points about, about the sort of the rules of associations in humans. In the 30s, 1936, B.F. Skinner arrives. And B.F. Skinner also would go on to make some, some claims that were false, but he is a behaviorist who's not ridiculous. And he starts describing principles of behavior that can be used to control and predict behavior in a wide variety of critters. By the 60s, behaviorists are starting to put some real pressure on the traditional forms of psychotherapy. Show us the evidence. Maybe we can take uh, some of these principles of learning coming out of the laboratories and actually apply them to, uh, you know, human uh, problems, psychopathology. Right. Uh, because learning, after all, is all about changing. Yeah. You, you know, yeah. uh, behavior. You keep track of behaviors. And uh, we can measure it. Uh, adherence of... Uh, B.F. Skinner began working with psychotic people, right. showing well. Maybe you Doing, seem uh, to be able to move them a little bit. Analyses some of, of their of behavior, people, yeah, at right, least. Right. You could change some of their behavior. Adherence of uh, uh, Wolpe and Isaac, who were more classical Pavlovian in their approach, began mm -hmm. using 
classical conditioning principles, which were more uh, applicable to sort of, uh, you know, things like phobias, emotional disorders. Yeah. And they began publishing the case, the odd case study here and there, a series of cases. And one of the really important things that comes out of this school of thought and research is the idea of extinction. You know, Pavlov showed that you can condition a response with a conditional stimulus to an unconditioned stimulus. The unconditioned stimulus being food that you need to survive. The organism has to have it. The conditioned stimulus being something that indicates the imminent arrival of food, like the bell. This worked so well that at some point Pavlov didn't even have to ring the bell. The dogs started salivating just when a researcher would walk into the room. One of the questions that reasonably followed from that was, can they unlearn them? And it turns out they can by repeatedly experiencing the conditioned stimulus without the unconditional reinforcer. In other words, hearing the bell without getting the food. Yes, that's right. This starts to be called extinction or habituation. In actually the late 50s, a psychiatrist out of South Africa named Joseph Wolpe starts developing something called systematic desensitization. And it's based on the idea of extinction or habituation, but trying to operate still within a Freudian context, right? Because everybody's Freudian now, especially if you're a psychiatrist. That's still true often. So Freudian psychotherapy says if you have a phobia, say of a snake, and you expose that person to a snake, they will lose their mind. Wolpe reasons that we could apply habituation per the behaviorists while avoiding making our person have a nervous breakdown per the Freudians by doing it in little tiny doses. Thus, it's desensitization. You become desensitized to the stimulus systematically. Okay, now we are essentially caught up to the beginning of Barlow's professional career. It's important to keep in mind that he and his colleagues are not only researching psychology, they are outlining the process of modern psychological research itself, attempting to solve the epistemological questions of the field. We began adopting the procedures from the operant laboratories with animals Uh to uh, those methods. We began adopting them uh, to uh, our clinical populations. And that resulted in a paper we called Single Case Experimental Designs, yeah. which then turned Beautiful. into a book yeah. in the early 70s. And so most of our work was you know, functional, analyses functional analysis of uh, various therapeutic elements used with very severe patients who we would actually admit to the hospital. A paradigm shift yep. in, in so many ways, not just in terms of what you're capable of doing um, in clinical psychology, but also just there's a methodological advance to provide a technology, a sort of conceptual technology, methodological technology for demonstrating, you know, the the, the old phrase prediction and control yep. with with uh, with troubled individuals that you're trying to help. The notion that if you can really look at the patterns of change through frequent, repeated measures yeah. over a longish period of time, you find out so much more information. Well, that was a technique 
that was largely identified with treating people with specific phobias. Right, right. Which was very difficult to treat in those days. That's I mean, nobody it's incredible could, because yeah, the nobody <laughs> could uh, treat it because nobody, nobody dared to do what exposure. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that would have probably seemed unbelievably paradoxical. Well, not only that, but in psychoanalytic theory, it was considered dangerous. Yeah. Because you have to remember that anxiety was really a signal. Right. That uh, there were uh, forbidden stuff. conflicts yeah. that were buried for you a reason. You could really break somebody by going into right. those and deep conflicts. And that if you, let's say, created uh, overwhelming anxiety, then you risks uh, uh, a psychotic break. Oh, yeah. That uh, the, the, the signal... Because they, because they wouldn't be able to to use utilize their defenses exactly. or whatever. Exactly, would overcome the defenses. Yeah. The anxiety was a signal that yeah. the conflicts were coming near the surface right. and right. it got too intense. It was a signal the defenses were breaking down and, yeah. and uh, some kind of a psychotic break. And interestingly, Pavlov himself had a similar notion and it was called transmarginal inhibition. And that if the organism experienced too arousal that was too intense, the organism would shut down. There'd be a transmarginal inhibition, they call it. So it was like a uh, like freezing? freezing response. Yeah. So you had two different camps saying, don't elicit too much anxiety. So for that reason, Wolpe's procedures were very gradual. Oh, yeah. You'd imagine... A phobic stimulus. So, if yes. it was, let's just say a, the fear a spider. Yeah, yeah, you'd get a. Imagine a spider in a cage, fifty yards away. Right, right, right. And then you relax until you can imagine that spider yeah, yeah. with little anxiety. Only then would you move on to the spider twenty-five yards away, and so on. And it's really, up, it's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, so it was very, very gradual, and that's because we were afraid of doing damage. David Barlow comes in and starts working with Joseph Wolpe on this idea in the mid to late 60s and sort of rebrands it as exposure. The, the explanation is that the way you overcome a fear of something is you expose yourself to that thing until it doesn't cause a fear response, until you habituate to it per, again, the basic research of the behaviorists. Called it the great snake-phobic epidemic of the late 1960s. So one paradigm for looking at this research. Remember, there's almost no paradigms for looking at behavior yeah, change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we did this analog research. <laughs> and the analog research would be recruiting all these college sophomore, usually women, who are afraid of snakes and testing out like desensitization, do you need relaxation or not? Does it help to right, model right, right, right? Because you guys, re I remember, not. you know, it's, in some of your early papers, you have lots of playing around with with relaxation techniques as part of it or not. Yeah, and, and, these and kinds modeling, of and and yeah. does it make a difference whether you approach the cage or the cage approaches you? Right. Uh, I mean, it was you know little variables well, like that, which we knew nothing know. about. Yeah, right. Yeah, what we, you got to know. Yeah, you know, we're sort of uh, you know bootlacing it from the ground up, and. Uh, well, this was became very popular for dissertations in the 60s. <laughs> now, clinicians always had a hard time doing dissertations unless yeah. they went back to the animal labs. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but here's something a clinical psychology student could do. <laughs> so, 
we joked that by the, by the early 1970s, there wasn't a college sophomore left in the country who had a snake phobia because everyone had done their dissertations and, and cured them all. <laughs> Just like standardized research practices, the range of diagnoses available at the time was extremely limited. In those days, you know, the, the DSM, it wasn't until 1980 that we had these discrete categories. Right, right, In those right. days, there was the old DSM-2, and the, there was really just basically neurosis. Yeah. And there were some subcategories that no one, that were ill-defined, very poorly defined, like phobic neurosis. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and um, obsessive-compulsive neurosis. Right, and right. And maybe maybe They attack neurosis. neurosis onto the end of it. Yeah. So, the, 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 and they weren't well-defined. And frankly, nobody paid any attention to these really? categories. Because it didn't matter for insurance that much then. It didn't it matter was, for it insurance. Was just, just there was no insurance. Yeah, and, like... And, uh, and they were unreliable in psychoanalytic theory. They were very theoretically Yeah, yeah, yeah. Slowly, different pathologies are named and differentiated, creating unique paths of treatment along with them. And the concept of a unifying neuroses is generally left behind. To make a long story short, we put that aside for about a decade because we became very tied up with, uh, and it was very hot, uh, uh, doing large clinical trials, testing out our treatments for some of the specific anxiety disorders, starting uh-huh. with panic disorder, uh-huh. mm-hmm. then GAD, right? You know, then uh, you know some others, and we wrote some of the initial treatment manuals as they yes. came to be yes. called for these specific disorders, and we were. Very busy, a lot of grants, a lot of different projects, clinical trials going on. Some of them had a drug component to compare. Uh-huh. And um, so we were pretty consumed with that. At the same time, DSM-4 in the early 90s was happening. And I was on the task force by that time, which uh, you know made all the decisions on what went into DSM-4. Wow. And that was, that was extraordinarily time-consuming. Yeah. So all of which to say is we put aside this notion of what's common about the disorders. And by that time, the what we call now single diagnosis protocols right. were becoming very popular for the various uh, disorders, and other people were publishing them. As each new type of anxiety and panic disorder is outlined and addressed, the concept of general anxiety disorder becomes a placeholder, a vestigial remnant when more specific diagnostic criteria is not met. It was a, it was a residual disorder. It was like what's left over. Exactly. If you can't so figure if you out didn't what it have, is. Like, and not otherwise specified. Yeah, if you didn't have social anxiety yeah. or a panic disorder and agoraphobia, if you didn't have that kind of stuff and you were still really anxious, you got generalized, you got generalized. anxiety disorder. That's so interesting because, I mean, I'm thinking about your very recent work and I'm thinking that this, this residual sort of castaway diagnosis, as you're describing it, starts to become... The thing. Exactly. The main main thing. And by the mid-90s, we even published a paper that GAD was the basic, perhaps the basic anxiety disorder. It becomes clearer and clearer to Barlow that most of these unique diagnoses have many things in common with each other. Barlow, not to ever be undone somehow, even in his 80s, has started a kind of hyper-generalization of this principle. So he was always seeing the next horizon in a way that other people weren't. But now he's thinking, 
if you look at probably the best predictor of things that we don't want, divorce, dissatisfaction with job and life, dissatisfaction with self, there's a personality trait that pops up almost every time, and we call it neuroticism. And neuroticism is really, if you talk to my colleague Eric Turkheimer, it's really sensitivity. It's like being really sensitive. Is that reminding you of a word that we've talked about? Desensitization. <laughs> Barlow's like, you know what? I bet there is at least potential for a universal therapy that's not even, doesn't even have to wait for mental illness. Let's desensitize people to negativity. You'd think you want like to surround yourself with awesomeness, but what you kind of really want is to expand the range of what's awesome by taking threatening things off your radar. And so that's what he's pursuing now. It's like the first general theory of mental health and mental illness intervention that I've really seen that I, I think is right. We've extended our conceptions of what we're actually treating to, paradoxically, the old neurotic spectrum. Yeah, so that's it's what almost I was, like a return to I was neurosis. going to say. I know, I know, I know. That's part. That's part of why I'm so surprised. The irony is not lost on me. Yeah, good, good. <laughs> yeah. I remember in the in the early aughts, mid aughts, starting to pick up papers by you and looking at this sort of suggestion that there is this single construct that sort of underlies all of these disorders. And on the one hand, it makes a lot of sense. And I'm now pretty well convinced of it. But at the time, it felt like, oh, man. Oh, some of my colleagues are not a bit happy with me. Yeah. <laughs> some of my long-term colleagues who say that's just going backwards. Uh, have, as I mentioned often, it's not a new therapy. It's not a new school of therapy. Right. It's not a... It's taking elements we're already using and just tying them together with some tweaks to the concepts. Conceptually, we now... Uh, are targeting not the external context that triggers the emotion, such as a spider and spider phobia or, or uh, you know, a shopping mall uh, in, a, in agoraphobia. We're actually targeting the intense emotion itself. And the notion being that the problem is not out there, it's that the individuals have developed a very strong aversion to their own intense emotional experience, experience and therefore do everything in their power to uh, suppress, escape, or avoid that emotional experience. As you may have gathered from the title of this episode, avoidance is what is truly at the center of our conversations for today. We've heard how exposure can help decrease emotional and mental distress, but what is it about avoidance that is so bad? The trap of the mental gymnastics we have to get into to avoid something we don't want to experience. We don't want to experience the snake phobia, and so 
we might seek treatment for that if our avoidance of the snake is starting to make our life broadly miserable, right? Well, what if you had a crummy childhood and every time you think of your crummy childhood, you have a panic response? What you might do, quite reasonably, is try to avoid anything that makes you think of your crummy childhood. Turns out that as soon as you create a rule, and this is called rule-governed behavior, this comes out of Skinner, rule-governed behavior. You create a rule, like an algorithm, and you operate the rule. It turns out that a very, very, very interesting and also not very good thing happens. When you apply the rule successfully, it feels good. That turns out to be bad for you. When you see something that maybe reminds you of a crummy memory or experience, and then you avoid it, you go, ah. And that moment of relief is reinforcement. And what Skinner taught us is that reinforcement is defined by the fact that the reinforcer, that moment of relief, increases the frequency of the behavior that it reinforces. What is that behavior? Avoidance. So what happens is, in order to get more of those goodies, the goodies being that sense of relief, I have to find more things to avoid. And pretty soon, the world that I can inhabit effectively starts to shrink and get smaller and smaller and smaller as I chase the dragon of feelings of momentary feelings of relief. Turns out, you don't need a bell and food for conditioning to take place at all. The process can be much more subtle. Our minds are amazing powerhouses of meaning and association. So amazing that we can really screw ourselves over sometimes. Our next expert, here to tell us all about our very powerful minds, is Stephen Hayes. So Stephen Hayes, Steve, I call him, uh, is a Nevada Foundation professor of psychology and he's in the behavior analysis program at the University of Nevada. He would hate it if he heard me say this, but he's a little bit of a guru in the sense that he has really been at the vanguard of the supposed third wave of behavioral clinical practice. You know, he was a student who worked with David Barlow and has really taken that work of Barlow's and just just in, enriched our understanding of what is underneath the process of exposure therapy. What are the preconditions for exposure therapy to work? Why avoidance causes so much trouble? And how avoidance might be the single greatest threat to psychological wellness that we have. Steve comes along and has this insight that everything that we think is associative, everything that we learn, everything that we think gets associated to other things that it is possible to think. And those associations form these very rapid, almost crystalline structures of language. And that creates 
much of our world. This is, by the way, called relational frame theory, and it's brilliant. Is this part of the relational frame well, dynamic that when you try to avoid something, then the thing that you're trying to avoid sort of becomes larger and, and generalizes? Exactly. We have this pro we have this problem. If a non-human animal tries to avoid something, they can avoid it by the stimulus situation that your history gives right. some diversive function. And you can often do that. It'll have some cost maybe because you can't contact events in which you could learn new ways of responding to previously repertoire narrowing events because of your prior history. But that's probably not going to have a huge cost. When you add in human language to it, you have two things that happen. One is you get this symbolic generalization. So in ways that are very unpredictable, things spread throughout yeah. a cognitive network and the events that are related to them. So, for example, if you notice that you're relaxed and you're an anxiety disordered person like myself, that may be a cue to remember that you used to be anxious and then to think about how bad it would be if you were anxious here. And guess what? Next thing you know, your heart rate just picked up and then you notice that. Yeah. And next thing you know, you know, so, you know, relaxation induced panic is an empirical phenomenon. Mm -hmm. right? It's shown in the literature. It's amazing. Yeah. But it it's makes perfect sense because of this cognitive addition that showed up 200,000 to 2 million years ago, right? Somewhere in there, we learned to be able to do that. But then the other thing we do is we derive rules, which are rules, massive. I think, Verbal I, rules I are massive. I must not have this. Exactly. This not or when I do this, then I won't get that. Yeah, yeah. And so we put avoidance on steroids. We've got this generalization happening in ways we can't control. And so we start doing logical, reasonable, sensible, and pathological things. We start trying to not think about things, which actually only elaborate the network. We distract ourselves by focusing on something else. Yeah. You know, and and then this is very, most makes you weep when you see it, the, this kind of process where the faster we run, the faster we have to run because we're building out the very things we're running from through the process of running itself. And, uh, you know, self-amplifying prop processes give you these adaptive peaks yes you can maybe avoid a little bit by doping up or by running away but the next time you see it it's worse and so you're gonna have to run even faster and you you're building and then where's the end of that adaptive peak well it ends up inside an addiction or depression or anxiety or panic disorder and how do you walk down that peak when it means you're going to face things that are frightening. Looking at a panic disordered person in recovery, uh, you know, when I was struggling with panic, I mean, I could put fear in almost any situation, and it was regardless of formal properties. I can give you an example. I'd given a talk to a very large group in the middle of my panic disorder. I sort of eked it out. I'm eating tranks, et cetera. I mean, I'm yeah. doing it doped up. When is this about? Uh, 1980. 1980. And... I get the words out and so forth, and I can kind of understand why I was so scared, but I, I didn't. Now I have to give a talk to three nurses, three nurses in a room. I remember this, and my PhD student, my first PhD student, is coming with come with me. I almost couldn't make sound come out of my mouth, and and why? Because it's bigger. Well, it's not formally bigger, and I could tell you the words that go with bigger. If I can't give a talk to three nurses, I am nuts. Right. I've lost control of my mind. So, so my in, life in is sense, <laughs> that's so. So, in a sense, if you're giving a talk to a giant uh, auditorium full of people, if yeah. you freak out, then it kind of makes sense. Kind of makes sense. So you can. So, so you know, you're sort of. It's okay to freak out exactly. in, in a way, but it's not okay to freak out with three nurses. That would be ridiculous. That'd be and ridiculous. Thus, freaking out with three nurses becomes the ultimate horror. Much, much, much bigger. So that Holy shows shit. The, the property. This is, uh, our name for relational framing is arbitrarily applicable. 
uh-huh. derived relational responding. It's, it's a mouthful. But what we mean by that is not that language is all arbitrary. It's generally used in non-arbitrary situations. You should try to figure out how the natural yeah. world works. Science yeah. is all about non-arbitrary yeah. properties You're of events. You're controlling and predicting. Yeah, exactly. But you can, in principle, do it in ways that has very little to do, in fact, basically nothing to do, with the formal properties of the related events and everything to do with your history and circumstances that cause you to bring that bit of relational responding into the situation. So anything can be anything at any time. And I can make something bigger, smaller. I can make something that's before or after. And it, it's, it's not logical, but it's psychological. It's, how, it's <laughs> yeah. how we're set up to work. And the poor folks struggling with things like anxiety or OCD or whatever are trying somehow to take this relational network and use it to subtract relational phenomena by adding more relational phenomena and it's tail chasing. The the more you try to distract yourself, the more you're reminding yourself. We're always tracking it. The brain can't not do it this way. And relational frame theory helps form the, the, the foundation of acceptance and commitment therapy, which is his way of trying to break these relational rules that we create for ourselves that cause all kinds of trouble. If the rule is, I must not experience, you know, elevated heart rate because that elevated heart rate might lead me to a panic attack, then any time you experience elevated heart rate, you're going to feel distressed because you've created a rule that this must not happen. And that distress is going to lead you straight to a panic attack. It doesn't even have to be necessarily a negative factor, right? Like feeling good and relaxed can be a trigger for remembering a time that you didn't feel good and relaxed. God damn it. And it starts all this like body checking and counting and, and, you know, all of these things that your brain tells you, like, if you just do this, it'll it'll relieve this this uh, anxiety. My version of it is I have melancholia responses all the time. Like, you know, a song will come on the radio that I love, but the song also makes me think of painful times in my life. And even though the song was part of how I made it through those painful times in my life, now the association has formed. So one of the things that Steve has taught us is that these relational frames are always bi-directional. Having my first panic attack in a um, department of psychology meeting where I'm watching these uh, full professors fight the behaviorists were fighting the cognitivists uh-huh. <laughs> in a way that was just vicious. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, they're being angry. Oh, man. They, they, they can't believe how yeah. dense the other exactly. side is. They're it's objectifying and dehumanizing yeah. the others. They're calling each other names. Oh, and crazy. I'm an untenured assistant professor there. This is I, what? I, it's late 70s? Oh, this is like uh, 79, 80. 79. And I, I raised, I went there in 76, right? So I'm, st- I'm not yet tenured. Is that in Nevada? Uh, no, at, at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. North Carolina, Greensboro. And I raised my hand and they, uh, you know, they, they're so arguing so much they don't even notice that the young guy is asking to speak. <laughs> but eventually my hand comes down because I'm realizing my heart rate's going like 160 beats a minute. You know I mean? Oh, I'm so shit. aroused. I don't know why I that am. That feels bad. And when they finally called on me and all the eyes turned towards me, it seemed to me like an eternity. It was probably about 30 seconds. I couldn't make sound come out of my mouth. 
None. And my mouth is open and closed like a fish oh, out of water. Jesus. I, I, oh, that's I, embarrassing. I, too. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and so I'm having a like a breakdown the way I'm thinking oh, about it. For God's I'm sake. just anxious, but the way I'm thinking about it, I'm like, this is a catastrophic, humiliating event in front of my peers. And within hours, I'm trying to figure out how to make sure that doesn't ever happen again doing all the things that make it more likely. and, and it Like started, what? Well, for example, I, I would track for whether or not I was showing any early signs of anxiety uh-huh. in meetings, make sure I sit near the door, and if I start seeing any signs, then find an excuse to leave. Wow. Well, I might have taken gasoline and thrown it on a fire. These yeah, are exactly yeah, yeah. the things to make anxiety more salient and more likely because what I'm doing, I've got a verbal rule. If I get a little anxious, I need to get out because if I don't, it would be really bad because I'll humiliate myself again and this would be awful and maybe they'll fire me and they won't even ever give me tenure. So I've got these big consequences, right? Yeah. That are there cognitively and a rule that says any sign of anxiety could lead to that. Well, guess what? You have some early signs of anxiety, yeah. even checking. They're everywhere. Yeah, and just as soon checking. as you check, that's yeah. enough, right? You, you have to find them. And it starts spreading and spreading. And, and you know, I didn't want to get on elevators. I didn't want to answer phone calls. I didn't want to go to movie theaters. I didn't want to go to restaurants. If I, if I, if I got there, I'd certainly go to the door. I was doing all of You talk to people. Get a group of panic-disordered folks together and talk about them. And after you've heard about three stories, it's all the same story. Yeah, the details change, but it doesn't mean it's all the same because it's it's just human stuff. You're not doing anything that's that weird. You're yeah. trying to solve the problem yeah. of anxiety. Don't try to solve the problem of anxiety. That is the problem of anxiety. You yeah. know, if you ever try to solve anxiety, you're in deep trouble because you're going to use the processes that will make it a bigger problem. This might be the hardest part to grasp: that in order to be less distressed, we can't avoid the distress. So instead, you feel it. But that's not all that needs to happen. In their conversation, Jim wonders as to why Hayes' anxiety wasn't improving when he was experiencing it so often. Yeah, but I was doing white knuckle exposure. And Uh you know, there's no linear relationship between the amount of exposure and reduction in panic and panic disorder. There isn't? No, there isn't animal models, but I'm I didn't know that. No, there isn't. You can expose yourself morning till night and end up worse than you started. Or you could go pretty quickly, too. Exposure is important, but something has to happen during exposure. And we now know something of what it is. Your relationship to Ah. these repertoire narrowing stimuli internally and externally has to change. And if it doesn't, you don't get better from exposure. You have to actually see that there's a, and, and you'll stumble on it usually by exposure alone, just brute force exposure, but it's not guaranteed. You have to, is it like you have to communicate about it or you have no, to? No, what you, what you have to see is, here's the way I can say it, I think. When I was a little boy, I, I'd have dreams of dinosaurs and they would look through the window and eventually I would run and I had these running dreams. We all have had them. And no matter how fast I run, the dan- dinosaur would run faster. Uh-huh. Right? Well, <laughs> eventually it would catch me, bite me, and I'd wake up. Right here. Uh, well, monster dreams, right? You've yeah, these sure. Things. Yeah, Falling I had dreams, plenty of those. dreams. Okay. I had, yeah. Especially as a kid, we have these things. Yeah, I had a lot well, of Well, somewhere in there in a semi-lucid dream, I had this idea of, wait a minute. If it catches me, I'm going to wake up. I'm going to speed that up. And I turned and I ran towards the dinosaur and jumped in its mouth. And I woke up. I said, this is cool. And so then I started remembering in the dreams more regularly, and I'd run towards the dinosaur, and I'd jump, jump in its mouth, and I'd wake up. And uh, 
the dinosaurs kind of stopped coming. Whatever that voice is, that voice within, that part of our cognitive repertoire that I think is actually not trying to hurt us, it's just trying to help, it's saying, and it's predicting what's gonna happen and telling what you do, but it's giving you advice that you've followed over and over and over again and it's led you nowhere. That's what mental health problems are. Yes. It's listening to the voice within. I'm not talking about psychosis. I'm talking about this sense of, here's what I need to do. This and, compulsion and, to act yeah, exactly. in a certain way or feel and a certain way. I can way. almost hear it as a voice in my head. Oh, no, you have to run. You know, you're, uh, This is going to watch, watch out. And, and in other situations, maybe that's good for you. You know, If you're avoiding uh, danger, physical danger or something, but it's not good here. And so I jumped in the mouth of the dinosaur and I woke up. This is where desensitization comes back into play. There needs to be a transformation with the stress, fear, anxiety, whatever it is. A moment of true acceptance that allows the relational framework to be more flexible. When you're telling your anxiety, you're not gonna do its bidding anymore. You're not gonna, you're not telling your anxiety, it's not there. No. You're not telling that, that you're not gonna endure that you're just you're taking control of how what you do what i do and i'm not even saying the anxiety is not important our emotion we we earn them honestly they come from history and circumstance and and our underlying biology and they're worth our attention and we don't turn our lives over to our reactions so it's this soft posture of no with respect anxiety you don't get to drive the car yeah. but i do want to listen to you and and hear what you have to say yeah if if it's something of importance hayes proposes that this concept of transformation through acceptance is not just essential when responding to acute panic but is key to developing a more resilient psychology as a human individual it's not going to be without pain you know that you're going to die you're going to see People around you die and know that things are impermanent. The pain of finitude, of knowing that you can't be here for everybody, for everything and all the ways you want to be. I wish I could have been there in Orlando and stopped those murders. I couldn't do it. And on and on and on. And, you know, and we see it. We see it even in the the poignancy and the bittersweet moments that are joyful. You know, like when a baby is born. I, I have four children. I've seen uh, multiple births of children and I've cried at everyone. Yeah. And yet the qua- the tears have this quality of bittersweet. It's wonderful. And you also know that you're bringing a person into the world who's going to have pain. Yeah, this this just makes perfect intuitive sense to me yeah. too. And this is part of why along the time around the time that I'm also discovering Skinner uh, in in undergraduate school I'm also discovering some of the the existentialists, right? right. You know, and taking uh, some philosophy courses, and 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 that stuff just rang true. I felt like I wasn't being lied to. Yeah, like the way that I felt when I was in church, I felt like I was being lied to a lot of the yeah, time exactly. because I was being told that I had this possibility of, you know, uh, uh, a pain-free existence, uh, and that just did not seem true. It isn't wise. It doesn't exist. Yeah. And. The sooner we orient towards that and find the way, I mean, all the wisdom traditions and deeper clinical traditions do this. And if you just look at people who age well, they learn this lesson. Yeah. 
you know, and they'll say things like, don't sweat the small stuff. And, yeah. you know, the, this kind of very open process of, yes, there's pain there and there's purpose and there's love and there's connection and there's loss. And they come as an Oreo cookie. Love and loss is part of the same uh, the same little uh, Oreo. This does seem to be part of a uh, several sort of traditions, philosophical Buddhism, Stoicism, these kinds of, you know, existentialism right. all sort of carry kind of the nuggets of what you're talking about here. And what that maybe it makes a little more sense of what I've said about this aspirational thing of creating a psychology more adequate to the challenge of the human condition. Many of the psychological traditions that have been willing to talk about human complexity in a way that's not minimizing or, re or reductionistic, you know, where they never find themselves saying sentences, well, that's just... And if somebody says, well, that's just... I almost don't want to hear the rest of the sentence. Yeah. You know, because I just... I, it's you're going to minimize something, you know. Yeah. Love is not just reinforcement. You know, right. Don't even say that right. sentence. Right. You know, right. and and who if, knows if we'll ever be able to adequately um, put our heads around what it's like to be a human being and know that you're going to die, to love a child and know that they're going to have pain in their life. Uh, but we can do a better job than uh, just saying that's not important or minimizing it, reducing it. So we're trying to find a way to take this Western science, analytical, monistic tradition that links to the biological sciences, evolutionary sciences, underlying neurobiology that takes context seriously and, hear, and, and learning seriously and is going to walk right into the lion's den of meaning and purpose and spirituality and love and relationships and and loss and grief and sadness and depression and not just by shoving them into syndromal boxes and trying to put a protocol on top of their heads, but really understanding human beings. Almost every, at least emotional, disorder has some kind of avoidance-based process that can be treated with some kind of exposure process. You have to think it through. It's not always easy to identify what it is. But the process is almost the same every time. And it wakes up to this in a broad way in about 1975. Once exposure starts getting broadly applied, nothing can touch it. It was like the Beatles of uh, psychological inter intervention. Here we are in 2023, and you can ask a perfectly reasonable question. Has clinical psychology made a leap conceptually or in terms of treatment efficacy that looks anything like what happened in the 60s and 70s with the development of desensitization and exposure therapies? And the answer unequivocally is no. I mean, everyone knows what we're talking about here, right? Everyone has had a, you know, a bad experience with a certain food that then they can't eat that food anymore. They don't want to. Or like you said, they had a, a certain breakup where a song was very pertinent to them, or maybe they listened to a, a certain song or watched a certain movie with their partner, and now they don't want to watch that because the, that relationship's over and it brings up too much, right? We're constantly making these associations, and I think that's a really good framework for understanding why avoidance is, is so powerful and detrimental. It's so simple. We can't not place things in a relational frame 
the reason that that's so important to know and that's so important to have is that this is how we build symbolic language and communicate. This is why we communicate so well. And it has this consequence, this, this booby trap in it that can create relational frames that we can't get rid of. And so Steve has devoted the whole, you know, second act of his career, you might say, <laughs> act, <laughs> to, to figuring out how to intervene and undo those relational frames. And that's what ACT therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, is all about. And, you know, a lot of the therapy is very metaphysical and profound, you know, accepting the way it is, you know, lots of mindfulness kinds of things. But much of his approach is hilariously concrete. You know, saying a word over and over and over and over and over and over again until it loses its meaning is pretty concrete. That's that's like, you know, lifting weights or yeah. something. And I think that's a real virtue of his approach. He's like, hey, try this for a while. It's going to seem really silly. That's why it works. Um, so it's not just exposure, but it's also shifting meaning. Right, right. Something he says is that no matter the amount of, you know, you can expose yourself all day, but if you're not making that transformation of feeling, right? And, and in the ERP that I've read about and, and practice myself, you know, usually that's sticking with that thought, not letting it spiral, sticking with whatever the, the stimulus of the anxiety is for like 40 minutes when your body just kind of has to give up. Like your yeah. body will stop, you know, increasing your heart rate and slowly you'll, you'll calm down. And if you're able to, to hold with that one trigger and not go to another trigger, because that's, that's, you know, very common response is like, oh, what else freaks me out? Yeah. And you're able to relax, let your body just like finally give up that's when that transformation happens. You have thoughts all the time <laughs> that are gonna you know, intrude into your psyche and, and freak you out and letting yourself just in the moment say like, okay, yeah. There it I, is. There it is. Like, There's my association. Keep, keep going. Like, yeah, keep going. Keep going yeah. is, the, is, the, is one of the, the principles. Many people have created a relational frame that says, what I feel determines what I do. And he's like, nope. Right. What you feel doesn't determine a goddamn thing other than what you feel. <laughs> the other big thing is that people want to control what they feel. What they feel. And that's sort of like, you can't. That is a pathway do <laughs> to doom. All I can do is control my actions and what I do with these thoughts and... I am allowed to trust my actions. I'm allowed to trust myself to do the actions that I want to do and not the things that are freaking me out in my head. I tell you, the rubber really hit the road for me after my heart attack. I actually got help from the man himself, Steve Hayes, with the fact that I was obviously really afraid of dying, that I was going to die. And... I would have, you know, bodily symptoms that I probably would have ignored before, you know, maybe a little indigestion or whatever. And I would sh go back to the hospital and they would keep me overnight 
and run all these tests. And this was happening again twice. I got run to the hospital in ambulances. I wasn't having panic attacks before my heart attack, but I was after. And what I learned from the heart attack itself is that it might be a heart attack. <laughs> right. You and don't know. <laughs> there was no way out of that association. So I was like, am I just going to the hospital in ambulances every other week for the rest of my life? My only choice was to feel like I was going to die and not take that action. The possible consequence being I would die. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. But it worked. That's quite the exposure scenario. The consequences are it'll eventually fade out or you'll die. <laughs> I'm cackling evilly now, but that's because the thing is, the stakes can sometimes be that high. And they're obviously often not, but they almost always feel that high. Every single one of us, uh, of us will suffer, and often substantially. I think this is a very humanizing point because it's, a, it's an opportunity, it's a doorway we can walk through conceptually that it that opens our hearts to each other in profound ways. When we realize that there is no escape, you will not get through this life, not only without dying eventually, but without pretty severe emotional, maybe physical pain, and that nobody else is going to get out of that either. No matter how they present on social media and Instagram, they're not going to get out of that. Right, right. And the question then is, well, what do we do with that information? How do we proceed through our life? The answers aren't easy, but one of the things that we've learned from Steve's tireless efforts in regard to addressing that question is that when we stop avoiding the suffering, the suffering is mitigated. By a lot. Fucking hell. It's almost a joke. I know. It's such a joke. I didn't feel like I ever experienced anxiety before a certain point. And um, part of that was because I, I was really capable of doing things like performing on stage and improvising and, and yeah, putting, that's fascinating. putting myself into a lot of... Um, I've heard that before yeah, from performers. Sometimes people will call it high-functioning anxiety. I don't know how I feel about that label, but like, you know, like I have no problem performing on stage, but thinking about how exactly I'm going to open the door to the grocery store and like when I'm going to look at people and, you know, and, and smile and, how, you know, that stuff sends me up a wall. Absolutely scary to me. Um, hmm. So that's another part of this where it's like it's so personal. It's so specific to one person. There's a lot of patterns and, and you know, um, you can talk to other people who have a similar relationship with these things and, and find understanding. But 
when it comes down to it, all of these associations are extremely personal. You and your best friend might both experience anxiety and and they sit beside you and say, well, this kind of makes me feel terrible. Yeah. And you're like, that's absolutely wild. Like, no way. And then you share your thing and they're like, that's ridiculous, you know? And it's kind of that this thing where like, it's only scary to us sometimes, you know? Like some of these yeah. triggers are like only specific <clears throat> um, uh, that, that's to your right. experience. That's right. And it's not always easy to communicate. When you get trapped in that cycle of avoiding, you make the thing that you're avoiding more likely to happen. By a lot. By a lot. By like, these are all exponential. I, you know, it's hard to describe if someone hasn't experienced like one of these things transforming, but it is an exponential change. It yeah. is a night and day type of change. Yeah. Yep. Very Steve cool. is aware. <clears throat> Steve is well aware of the existential nightmare that this can all be and sound like. And he was stuck in it with his panic disorder. Yeah. One of one of my favorite things is like, you know, I think there's a, a real level to which humans and, and our societies accept fear as a given, right? There are things that are scary. He uses the example of like I stood up on stage in front of a ton of other medical professionals and gave this, you know, speech and it was fine. But then he was having a conversation with like three nurses yeah. and f like losing it. Completely lost um, it. And he was like, well, if, if I can't handle that, then I'm like, I need to be institutionalized. He, he had this like whole, <laughs> right. you know, issue about it. And we have a cultural understanding that fear is going to exist, but we sort of associate it with specific things. Talking in front of big crowds. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, doing anything that might, you know, endanger your life or, or whatever. We don't necessarily think of like washing dishes or, you know, going to bed and knowing that you turned the stove off or something like that, yeah. that, that actually affects a ton of people. Right. Um, and that's sort of where we're like, that's crazy, you know, in big scare quotes, but like that, association with it that's crazy that part of it that's what causes a lot of the problem is that we're saying this fear is unacceptable and we yeah. attack it and we pile avoid on it. ourselves yeah yeah exactly dumbasses dumbasses <laughs> folks the music of circle of willis is written and performed by tom stoffer and his band the new drakes for more information on how to purchase their music visit our website circleofwillispodcast.com the music within this episode is from blue dot sessions Special thanks for production assistance from Kaylin Feely, Ashley Park, and Omega Ilyevich. You can also find all of our old episodes on the website. If you haven't already, subscribe to Circle of Willis wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Instagram for more updates. Circle of Willis, human stories of the science that shapes our world.